So we're going to be turning to the book of Proverbs, if you will. I know that Matt's preaching from Ecclesiastes, but it's important to note that Ecclesiastes and Proverbs are closely related. You see, Ecclesiastes is wisdom of this world from a human perspective. And it ends the way you would expect. And Proverbs is wisdom of the world through a theological perspective. And it ends the way I hope you would expect. So if you would turn with me to Proverbs chapter 16, we're going to read the first nine verses. Reading the writer writes, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. The mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his paths. Let us pray. Father God, as we come and we continue our time of worship through the proclamation of your word, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the message that you have for our hearts. Let us walk away from here today more invigorated, more inspired with a passionate love for Christ to affect your kingdom here. Let us be your humble servants and move upon us this morning. It is in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Bruce. If you are a... K through fifth grader. I'm going to do something for the first time this year. It's been all the way since last year that you guys get to leave and go to your class. So I'm going to send you guys out over here with Miss Stephanie. You'll see her back there in the back door. You guys head that way. The rest of you, I would love for you to open the book of Ecclesiastes for me, please. If you open the book of Ecclesiastes, it's found between Proverbs and the Song of Songs. And so if you head over to that way, you'll know that as Pastor Bruce just read, He did share about the wisdom that it is, what comes from it all. And as we look at that, we're going to be diving into that human perspective as Ecclesiastes is written. And we look at this from a standpoint of the author that is Solomon, at least many believe that it is. And he's the one who authored um, the Song of Songs when he was youthful and invigorated. Uh, when then he had his moment of Proverbs that he wrote during his lifetime. And many believe Ecclesiastes was his looking back at life from that human perspective. You'll know that as we were going to begin this 2024, that, that Pastor Bruce is reading from 
Proverbs 16, and we sat down and talked on Friday after he'd gotten back from his trip. And we said, hey, how do we want to kind of get this time in the word started for the beginning of 2024? And he said, how about we do Proverbs 16? And I said, actually, that'd be very fitting because that verse nine that he read said these words, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his step. And I say that's a fitting verse for the beginning of the year and really the beginning of any day, but it's also a great one for the beginning of our Ecclesiastes series because Ecclesiastes was not my original plan. As a matter of fact, a lot of people are like, you're going to really preach in Ecclesiastes? I've never heard a preacher preach in Ecclesiastes. And I'm like, neither have I. And I can't find any books about it either, which is even crazier. But as I began to do it, I was writing on my sermon calendar and my original thought was to start the, the year with the call of God on our lives. With Pastor Bruce being ordained next week, I thought, what a great way to, to tie in the, the call of the gospel ministry in Pastor Bruce's life. And with baptisms in two weeks, the call of God to take that next step in your faith journey and following him. And then child dedications in February, the call of God on both parents and the church to raise children in the Lord. I thought it'd be fitting. It'd be fitting to start that way and we can look at different characters of the Bible and their calling. People like Abraham, people like Moses, people like Esther, Elijah, Elisha, and even the call of Jesus in Luke chapter nine for us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him daily and see how that applies that what God would call us to do through this next year. And then that would lead into our study in Jude. But as we read from that verse, man makes plans, God determines the steps. And as I began to look at that, something that our time and at the movies got me questioning because it seemed like every movie that we looked at had the same basic theme and it was a theme of life and meaning and purpose and what they're all about and I began to look and say you know what is this next year all about what is the next year all about for my life what's the next year all about for my family what's the next year all about for my church family And, and what's the year after that going to look like You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about that crew mentality. Are we as a church rowing together in the same direction as God? Are we as individuals rowing in the same direction as God? Are we doing with our families? Are we doing it in all these different ways? And on Thursday, I got to take uh, Christy and, and the older kids to finally go see that movie, Boys in the Boat, which is all about that teamwork and rowing together for a common destination. And one thing I saw, actually I kept leaning over to Christy going, oh, there's a sermon. Oh, there's a sermon. And she's like, just watch the movie. And, and I, was, I was in awe at the one scene where he just kept saying, all one, all one. And that was the constant cry out, was all one. We need to be doing this together in sync, rowing for the goal that is bigger than any of us individually. And that goal is to build the kingdom of God. And I'm going to say it again because I've said it for, I don't know, 14 years since we started this church. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about his kingdom being built and how we fit into that plan of his to make it happen. And here's the thing. If you pay attention to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you pay attention to the things we're going to look at for the next 12 weeks, I believe the book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us see life in the real world. 
to see life in the real world. We're going to see these things and the, the steps we need to take that it is all about Him. And I say the real world for this reason because I have kids and I also once was a kid that like to imagine things. I was the one who would take the, the, all the sheets off my bed and I'd stretch from the dresser to the mattress to the windowsill and that would be my impenetrable fort. Some of you probably did the same thing. Your tree fort in the backyard was an army base. Maybe some of you uh, played doctor with your stuffed animals and, and your baby dolls and those kind of things like that. And when they would come in, you could heal them. That, that imaginary world that we, we like to live in, where everything got better all the time. But the thing is that that is imaginary. And the real world is not that. The real world is not perfect. As a matter of fact, Sometimes the real world stinks. We'll just call it what it is. And as we begin to look at this real world, we see that what this book is all about. It's about the fact that this real world isn't what it's all about. This real world and all the things we deal with and this book that we're going to look at points us to Jesus. It points us to God and His perfection. Because if you look closely, you'll see almost every verse in this book shows us how much we need a Savior to make all things new. And it's going to continue to do that. Everything that we look at, and hopefully you have your Bibles open already to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. But I'd like for you to follow along just as we read these first set of verses. This, This first chapter. The words of the teacher, it says, Son of David... King in Jerusalem. This is where we get the idea that this is Solomon who is writing this. One thing we need to know about Solomon is he's probably the wisest, richest, and most prosperous man to ever live. And this is what he says next in his wisdom, in his having everything and knowing so many things. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? And he's going to answer that question here in a moment. But here's something I want you to to think about. Again, I like to watch movies differently. And in us watching movies differently, this actually reminds me of a movie. It's a holiday movie, but not a Christmas movie. That holiday movie is Groundhog's Day. We watch it every year on... Groundhog's Day. And it's one of those ones that just stands out to me. If you've never seen it before, I'm sorry, you're missing out. Because Bill Murray plays the main character, a weatherman by the name of Phil Connors. And Phil gets stuck reliving Groundhog's Day in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, over and over and over again. Every morning he wakes up, it's the same old song. And you probably know what it is, because if you've seen the movie, it's I Got You, Babe, with Sonny and Cher. He wakes up to it, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. Some people who've watched the movie way too many times assume that he probably relived the same day for three decades. Three decades of monotony, same day, over and over and over again. So what's he try and do during those three decades to break free or cope with this monotonous prison that he is in? What does he do to try and find meaning when it seems like nothing really matters from one day to the next? Well, he starts looking for happiness in all different places. He looks at it from the, the perspective of pleasure. And then he gets into greed. And then he tries to become ultra knowledgeable and even to the point where he realizes none of that works and he tries to take his own life multiple times 
throughout that day, but wakes up again on February 2nd. But there's a really interesting scene in the movie when Phil is actually trying to figure out what's going on. And he's sitting at a bowling alley at a bar with two local drunks. And he says this phrase, he says, what would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was the same and nothing you did really matters? And one of the drunks stares into the beer mug and basically says this, yep, that about sums it up for me. The thing is, is that when we look at that movie, our life is probably more like Groundhog's Day than we'd actually want to admit. Stuck in a regular routine. Let's think about it this way. Tomorrow, school starts again. And parents say, as school begins again, guess what's going to happen? You're going to fall into what we call a regular routine. I've been wanting regular for the last about month. Just try and get into normal... I didn't know what day it was for the last month. I, I, I struggle with that. But think about this. Tomorrow morning, you're going to do on Monday. You're going to wake up at 6. Your alarm's going to go off. You're going to hit snooze. After you hit snooze, you're going to realize you shouldn't have hit snooze. You've got to hurry up, jump in the shower, brush your teeth, eat breakfast, do all the things you've got to do. Get yourself ready. Get the kids out the door. Get yourself out the door. You go to work. The kids go to school. You do your things in the morning. You have lunch. You do your things in the afternoon. You clock out. You go to the gym maybe, you go home maybe, you eat dinner maybe, whatever it might look like. Then you go sit on the couch, you relax, you decompress, you do your thing, you go to bed, and guess what you're going to do on Tuesday? Exact same thing. And you're going to do it again on Wednesday. You're going to look forward to Friday, then you can go through your weekend routine, and then you're going to start all over again on next Monday. And we begin to look at that and we say, you know what, maybe my life is more like Groundhog's Day. Maybe I just go through these motions and I'm stuck in the rut trying to figure out what all of this means. What life means. What purpose is there? What what meaning is it? There's this monotonous drudgery to life. I mean, the truth is, when you go to work, do you have a casual Friday? Do you have um, a Hawaiian shirt Thursday? Something that kind of breaks up the monotony just so there's something just a little bit different. I think supervisors get that monotonous drudge of life and they say, hey, we got to do something. Maybe a Christmas sweater Sunday. You know, those things are happening and we try and say, how do we get through this hard truth of monotony? Some people will turn to substances. Some people turn to relationships. Some people turn to food, to work, to stuff, all with the hopes that that thing or those things will give them some sort of meaning and purpose in life. In Ecclesiastes, guess what? We find a guy who is faced with the monotony of life and trying to find meaning in all of those things. And we're going to see it for the next 12 weeks. All of those things play themselves out. And each time he's going to conclude something, and I'm going to tell you this ahead of time, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. It says Ecclesiastes is written by the teacher or preacher. Who is he? He's the son of David, king of Jerusalem. We narrowed that down to Solomon. So let's look, figure out a little bit about Solomon and who he is. When King David died, he handed down the kingdom of Israel over to his son Solomon. And God came to Solomon in a dream and said, Hey, I'll give you anything that you ask for from me and I will grant it to you. Well, because Solomon was young and inexperienced in 1 Kings 3, we see that he asked for wisdom in order to have the ability to rule the nation properly and uphold justice. Well, God granted Solomon's request, and Solomon used that wisdom to rule his kingdom. 
Then it tells us in 1 Kings 4 that one of the ways that Solomon established a glorious kingdom was through thousands of wise sayings and people from all over the world came to hear these sayings and these songs. And a lot of that is found in Proverbs, in Song of Songs, and in Ecclesiastes. However, that wise man, uh, that of uh, the greatest, probably wisest man of the ancient world became greedy. He became lustful. He became power hungry he became idolatrous and he basically became a fool and in it all he, he violated the kingly commands of Deuteronomy 17 and he started accumulating possessions as well as women for himself and I say accumulated women he had 700 wives it tells us in 1 Kings 11 and 300 concubines now, I'm not sure if you can do the math on that but that's a thousand and a thousand over even the span of a year is dealing with three women a day just yeah, I just, I'm going to leave that there for you guys, okay? That, that is unbelievable. But these foreign women that he married started to pull him away from the God and turning him to false gods, turning him to idols and all of these kind of things. And he did deny himself anything that he wanted. And as a result, you know what happened? He ruined his kingdom. He ruined his kingdom and I began to kind of to look at this and God basically said, hey, guess what? Your kingdom when you die is going to be divided between your sons. And it's going to become a, a kind of a mess. And you'll see that throughout the Old Testament. And as you begin to look at that, you, you think, okay, well now he sat down he's penned Ecclesiastes to say, hey, guys, this is what I did. Learn from it. Don't do the same things. He's telling that to his son. He's passed that on to his son. He's passed it on to us. But... See, the thing is, even still today, people think to themselves all the time, what if? What if I could just have more money? What if I could just have more pleasure? What if I could just have more success? Then I would be really happy. But what happens when we get to that thing? Happiness eludes us. Solomon had everything, and he tried everything. And in Ecclesiastes, at the end of his life, he says, here's the conclusion. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. As a matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes 1-2, he gives that main point of the book when he states everything in human, human existence is the hevel of hevels. The hevel of hevels to say that life is meaningless as far as he possibly could. Taking it to the most extreme, because anytime you have those two words together, it's like holy of holies is the most holy place. The song of Solomon or the song of songs is the most and wisest and best song that he wrote. The hevel of hevels means this is as meaningless as possible. You know that word hevel is actually used more than 30 times in the book? It actually means a breath or a vapor. A breath or a vapor. The vapor kind of carries that connotation of being fleeting or temporary. When you breathe on a cold day like today, you saw your breath. But for how long? Like that. So quick. And it's gone. You can see that breath for a moment, then it vanishes. It vanishes. Has anybody ever tried to grab your breath as you breathe it out? No. You know why? Because you can't catch it. Because it's going to disappear, and even if you could, it's just going to go right through your fingers. That's what Solomon's trying to say. You can't grab the stuff of this life. It will be elusive. It's going to slip through your fingers, and it's going to disappear quickly. That's what he's continuing to say as he's talking about this. As a matter of fact, if we go back to what we talked about in James back in November, James chapter 4, he says life is that mist. It's going to vanish tomorrow. 
So this word hevel is used over and over again in Ecclesiastes. It's the idea that life is meaningless. And I know you're like, wait a second. I came to church on New Year's to have a challenging, good message, not to hear that this year is meaningless. Not to hear that this is a bunch of hevel. When we look at that, but that's exactly what he's saying, that it's pointless, it's worthless, it's frustrating because it's frail and it's temporary. That's the reasoning behind it. But oftentimes, you see that word hevel used in the Bible to talk about idols. Because those idols are the things that are going to slip through your fingers. Those idols are the things that are going to disappear quickly. And But the problem is, and this is what really Solomon's pointing out, is that we tend to draw towards those idols. We tend to draw towards the created things instead of the creator. Seeking satisfaction in anything or anyone other than God is called idolatry. And we fall into that. And the search doesn't work because we already know that the weight of what we need cannot be held by a temporary thing. It can only be held by Jesus. He's the only one that can bring us ultimate satisfaction. Let me tell you this. I'm going to be very honest that pleasure and money and stuff and sex and success... They are not bad things in and of themselves. But I've told you this once and I'll tell you it again. When you take a good thing and you make it a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And that's what we do with stuff that God has given us. When we try and find our meaning in that stuff that God has given us. And we're going to see throughout this book the success and the possessions and the pleasures that even religion are ultimately meaningless because they look like they can bring true happiness, but they can't. They're just a mirage. The problem is no earthly thing is ever enough because they are temporary. They are fleeting. They are meaningless. And when you try and build your life on those things, anything other than Jesus, it means it will be meaningless. It will slip through your fingers. As a matter of fact, go all the way back to the garden. Go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, God creates. He creates Adam creates Eve and they're created to live in this perfect garden a fruitful and meaningful place to live but guess what Adam and Eve they rebelled they rebelled against God and they were expelled from the garden and they were placed outside of the east gate where a uh, an angel was there to guard them from coming back in Ecclesiastes I think drives home the point that life in this fallen world east of Eden is futile it is meaningless As a matter of fact, you see the same thing in Paul's line of thinking when he's writing in Romans chapter 8. He says this in verse 20 and 21, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into glorious freedom of God's children. See, when man rebelled against God's design, a frustrating curse was brought into the world. Now, Nothing works right. Anybody wake up this morning and go, oh, nothing's working right. I felt it. But that's because of this. That's because what we're seeing here. We live in a broken world where we suffer the consequences of going our own way. Disease, death, poverty, evil, injustice. All those things and more are characterizing our current existence because of this fall. But according to Paul, that fallen creation is futile and in bondage, and they're, being, they're literally screaming to be rescued. The creation of humanity and the fall of sin 
really are the background of Solomon's observations of life in the broken world. God created the world with good and with a design for perfection. A design for everything, but we messed it up. We messed it up. That is Genesis 3. And Ecclesiastes describes that meaningless frustration of life in that post-Genesis 3 world. There's an atheist philosopher, maybe you've heard him before, his name is Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell does a good job of describing the realities of the world that people find for themselves as described in Ecclesiastes. He says these words in his autobiography. It said, We stand on the shore of an ocean, crying to the night and the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it's a voice of one drowning. And in a moment, the silence returns. The world seems to me quite dreadful. The unhappiness of most people is very great, and I often wonder how they all endure it. To know people well is to know their tragedy. It is usually the central thing about which their lives are built. And I suppose if they did not live most of the time in the things of the moment, they would not be able to go on. This is an atheist perspective on life. Sounds cheery, doesn't it? But the reality is, a life under the sun, as Solomon writes, is what unfolds in this book. And that under the sun comment there, we'll see here in verse 3, when it says, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? He's driving this home saying, everything under the sun, everything between birth and death is meaningless if it does not have a God perspective. If you take everything from a human, earthly perspective, this is where we're at. And you're going to see that phrase under the sun 29 more times in our next 12 weeks. You're going to see it pop up because that phrase is looking to answer the question of what is going on under the sun. If this world is all there is and there is no God, or even if you just act as if there is no God or live as if there is no God, no afterlife and no final justice, this life is meaningless. There's no point to it. And how many people live that particular way? Just hearing what Bertram Russell even had to say. Solomon actually expects a negative answer to his question about that profit or gain under the sun. If this life is all there is, what's the point? What's the point to our existence since all of our activity doesn't bring a net gain? There's no progress in it all because it's all, as we will see, circular. It just comes back around to the same point. All of our work, all of our education, and all of our relationships, do they really gain us anything Because nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes as opposed to thinking that same in, day in, day out, then we die. All right, let's close in prayer. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to date myself here for just a second. Because when I was in junior high and high school, there was a brand, and I think it's still around even today, but it was very popular then. All the cool kids wear it. I had one shirt. And that one shirt said this, the person who dies with the most toys still dies. No fear. Now, if you're cool and you had that no fear, basically you're wearing it as opposed to the one who dies with the most toys wins. What do you win? Nothing. This is much more correct. And Solomon actually is making a point similar to this shirt. If you don't get to take the fruits of your labor and the activity that you've done here beyond the grave, then what is the point? 
If this is all there is, we have missed it. From that godless perspective, there is no real profit to anything that we do. It's funny because Jesus kind of alludes to it in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. When he says these words, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet what? Loses his soul. Loses his soul. And the answer is nothing. How much you make, how much you learn, how popular you are, it is meaningless because without life in God, life is futile. Without life in God, life is futile. This is all there is. If we buy into culture's way of thinking about life, then there's no permanent value to life. The author's point is that this, if this is all there is, then there's no lasting meaning to what you are doing. That's what brings him into a poem in verse 4. Verse 4 through 11 is a poem, and he, he points out these repetitive cycles. I told you it's, it's a circular pattern. There's repetitive cycles in nature that prove that nothing is to get, be gained from all of our activity. He says nothing changes. As a matter of fact, this is what it says in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Humanity dies. A new generation comes along. They die. A new generation comes along. They die and the earth stays the same. Nothing changes. And then he gives three examples from nature and three examples of human experience that, that mirror that nature in verses five through eight when he says this, the sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It hurries back to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind and the wind returns and it cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full to a place where the streams flow and then they flow again. All the things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. So he compares the sun first to an exhausted track runner. This running laps and running laps. Seems like you've gone a long way, but guess what? You end up back in the same place where you started. This is kind of what he's talking about. And then he talks about the, the wind also blows in circles. Lots of activity, lots of movement, nothing changes. All of nature that he's talking about is characterized by this circular monotony. The last is a cycle of the oceans. The streams all run to the ocean. It's filling it up, right? No. It just keeps doing the same thing. The water doesn't rise. It just keeps doing this circular thing. There is no gain. The task is never done. It just repeats itself again and again. And there is no satisfaction. The universe is trapped in this meaningless Cycle, it seems like, never ultimately accomplishing anything. And he says the human experience mirrors that. Our existence be characterized as one of monotony and pointlessness. You want me to give you an illustration? How many of you guys did the dishes this morning? Sink's empty, right? Until when? Lunch. And then it's empty. I'm talking from people who actually clean their house, so forgive me if I'm including you in that and you don't. But it's always the same thing. Laundry piled up. Oh, the basket's empty until it's not. I mean, in our house, baskets are empty about 15 seconds. That, that's as long as it lasts. And, and it's just a constant, it's just the same thing over and over again, more bills, more emails, more haircuts, more grass to mow, it never ends. And I throw in haircuts there for myself personally. 
or trying to beat the system and trying to grasp onto the things of this world, it is futile. Trying to grab onto that peace. I need to be full of peace. I need to be full of that freedom. We realize we will never be full, just like the sea. Therefore, Solomon concludes in verse 8, this an existence full of weariness. And he uses three behaviors to parallel the sun and the wind and the sea. And he says this, you can't say enough, you can't see enough, and you can't hear enough. And we know that. We know that you can't see enough, hear enough, and, and really say enough to make this happen. It's kind of like as the Rolling Stones might sing. No matter how much we try, we can't get no satisfaction. There's nothing here to fill our desires. We will not be happy. We will not be content. We always want more, and it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. My guess is if you have a toddler, you know that. My guess is if you are 90 years old, you know that. It's the same, same pattern over and over. We think it's going to be different, but it's not. Then he makes this point in verses 9 through 11. He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new, here's that phrase again, under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. There's nothing under the sun. Nothing ever changes. Now, granted, we do have these technological changes that we have in that, but he's talking from the grand fundamental events of life, birth, marriage, family, work, death. It's the way it goes. The human race is the same bunch of sinners it's always been, and they haven't done anything really to make any difference. Solomon says that no one will ultimately be remembered. That's, that's beautiful, isn't it? But when you really stop and think about it, how many of you know your great-great-grandparents well? We might have heard stories, and my guess is, is maybe you haven't even heard that, because the next generation definitely won't hear it. We are forgotten. And the facts of life, that's what it is under the sun. It's all meaningless and frustrating. It has to ask that question of, why bother? Why value your life? What value is it? Because the thing is, is, even in that whole cycle, then we die. Then we die. Death is the great equalizer. Doesn't matter how smart you were, how dumb you were, how rich you were, how poor you are, what color skin you were. Death is the great equalizer. And we all st- step on this treadmill of life thinking somehow we're going to outrun it. And our, all of our activity is going to change things. But guess what? We'll just say it this way. The Grim Reaper is faster than us. And he will catch us. All of our new innovations, all of our new diets, all of our new technologies have only allowed us to postpone death for just a little bit longer. So here is the bleak reality. Solomon searches for meaning. He searches for satisfaction, and he comes with this answer. Everything is meaningless because nothing here truly satisfies. In his words, it's just nothing. I added the here. Because if you go to verses 12 through 18 which we're not going to cover today because I had 13 pages of notes which would have gone like two hours. We're going to cover that next week. I said, we'll cut this here because I'm tired of getting beat up. Thanks, Solomon, for this constant life. is awful. Happy New Year. That's, that's where I feel like we've been at for all of this. But as I'm sitting here looking at it, as I'm feeling the weight of all of this, we have to go back to what we said at the beginning. Everything is meaningless because this life isn't it. 
This life is not it. All of this life, its troubles and its joys are meant to drive us to Christ. To drive us to Christ. Remember what I said up front. If you look closely, almost every verse in this book will show us how much we need a Savior to make all things new. It drives us to Christ. The truth is, this is a depressing message from a human perspective, from a godless perspective. But... Ecclesiastes can't be rightly understood without looking at the conclusion. So I'm going to ask you to jump to the end of the book really fast for me. Jump to the end of the book, the conclusion. Chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. We're going to go into more depth of it later, but I really feel like we need to lay that foundation for the rest of everything that we do. The bleak outlook of the parts can only be understood in light of the whole as it's wrapped up here in the end. The conclusion starts with the main point that everything is meaningless. That's what it says in verse eight. That, that hevel word is wrapped up there. Then it says, this teacher is this wise man who arranged his writing with great care, telling us this is what we need to hear, but he did it in the nicest way possible. Verse 10 says, the words of the book are delightful and true. I struggle with that word delightful because I've read this book throughout these last couple of weeks. I've listened to it and gone, there's just not much delightful about it except for They give us that real life look at how the world works. How a world apart from God works. His words basically, it says next, are like cattle prods poking the livestock in the right direction. And the author compares the words of Ecclesiastes with this because they're going to sting a little and they're going to convict a little and they're going to drive us where we need to go. Then it says the ultimate author of Ecclesiastes, the Spirit of God, uses this word to convict the human hearts, to help us understand we need Jesus. Because without him, life is meaningless. These are the words given by the one shepherd. Solomon then gives us the ultimate conclusion of what it all comes down to in verse 13. It says the end of the matter is to do what? Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Obey God's will in your life. You're not going to be here forever, but while you are here, live for Him. Follow Him. Build His kingdom. I actually saw a summary of this book written in six words. Those six words were this. Prepare to die, learn to live. Prepare to die, learn to live. And the first time I said it, I, you know, it didn't really soak in. But the more I read it, the more I I thought about those six words, the more it affected me. Prepare to die, learn to live. And then it hit me. It goes back to that call of God in our lives found in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when he says these words, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Every day, daily. Prepare to die. Learn to live. Die to yourself. Learn to live for him. Every moment of every day, live for him. We need to remind ourselves of this call. Because it's real easy to get sucked into the world's trap. You know, it's funny. My guess is, is if we sat down and had a conversation over a table, we could have a conversation of big moments that have changed your life to help you see this prepare to die, learn to live mentality play itself out. I've had some. I can say, obviously, the first day that I 
met Jesus over 35 years ago was the biggest eye-opening one. The day I realized I was called to full-time ministry, prepare to die to yourself and learn to live. The day I married Christy, because that's what marriage is about, is dying to yourself and learning to live. The birth of my firstborn son, being a dad changes things, who is now, by the way, engaged as of last, last week. Um, he proposed, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not that old. I can't have a married son, and I'm definitely not old enough to be a grandfather. So wait, Camden, if you're watching online. Then the birth of my second son, who's graduating high school this year, which just makes me feel that much older. Then the birth of my, my first daughter, because there's something about being a girl dad that takes you to a whole nother level of being a, a warrior protector gentleman. Anybody in the youth group listening, watching, know that that's, what that, that's where I stand at. I'm not going to make myself any clearer. Hearing the words, you have cancer twice, that challenges life and what's worth living for. But I'll tell you what, one of the biggest changes of the direction, I have my plans, God directs the paths, happened almost 10 years ago. On St. Patrick's Day, it'll be 10 years since we got in Dale. It was a day that had been in process for months, really since the June, July of 2013 before when Christy had come to me and set a picture on my lap of an Ethiopian baby boy with Down syndrome who was in need of a family. At that moment, my, my life literally flashed before my eyes. And I say that because the first question you ask yourself is, how much is this going to cost me? And from a fee perspective sheet, if you go and you adopt, they will give you a fee sheet and it'll break down every fee along the way. And physically in the wallet, it was going to cost upwards of $40,000. And when you see that up front, you're like, what? But there's a bigger cost that was going to happen. Because when you have a child with special needs, the chance of them leaving your house is slim to none, which means all my ideas of retirement, which I'm a pastor, so that probably wasn't going to happen anyway, but all of my ideas of empty nest, all of my ideas of this is how life is going to look after we get all the kids out of the house, we're going to be gone. My life was going to change if we said yes. Talk about prepare to die and learn to live. That was it. But at the same time, that's the gospel lived out. Adoption is the gospel lived out. It was a giant blind step of faith and trust in God from the financial aspect to saying, God, you direct my path. I'll make the plans, but you direct my path. That decision was followed up by bringing home two Chinese orphans with Down syndrome 18 months later. And I'll tell you what, we wouldn't have it any other way, but that decision was life-shaping in its own way. It was hard. It was hard for me, but even harder on Christy because having three kids under four that all had special needs and all had a variety of health issues made it a challenge every day. And we asked ourselves often, what did we do? What did we do? What did we get ourselves into? And we had many conversations with, we're never doing this again. 
If you know, four years ago at the end of this month, we'll be celebrating Gotcha Day for our little girl, Glory Kate. Another little girl who had plenty of health issues and plenty of things that we didn't even know about. We didn't know she was deaf. We didn't know she was in heart failure. We didn't know these things until we got her home. And she's been a challenge from that part. But again, I wouldn't have it any other way. But she's the one that probably has pushed even further with that idea. Prepare to die, learn to live with all of her medical needs, with all of her therapies, with all the fact that her sleep schedule is still all jacked up after four years. She woke up last night at midnight and Christy stayed up till five o'clock this morning because she was just out, out there playing. And I was listening, and that's when I started writing this stuff down because I'm like, oh, actually, I text Christine, like, hey, I changed my message for tomorrow or actually later today because I'm awake and I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about these things, about how all over the place, but her little life has been the one that has changed us and challenged us to really lay our lives down. But I'll also say that in that we said, God, no more. This time we are really done. I'm old. <laughs> I don't have the energy to keep up anymore. I don't have that. But last year, last year, Christy was hanging out on an advocacy site called Reese's Rainbow. It's a site where you can find children from different agencies who are in need of adoption with those children with special needs. She found a little girl from Haiti. And, you know, Christy would show me pictures and, I didn't really think much about it because I was already still in the God, no, we're, we're really done. Um, and she knew some people that were adopting another child from the same Christian home in the area. And we weren't pursuing, but we were checking things out. And I'll be honest, I think Christy grew more attached than I did. And we just kind of kept up. We watched pictures. We'd see the things. Christy followed the Facebook page and we were kind of kind of in there and that same thought of we just can't we, we can't do it we, it kept coming up over and over and over again well fast forward to the end of November early December we got word about this little girl that she had gotten pneumonia and she died and you know I tried to make excuses I can't say them all you can't save them all. At least she was in a good orphanage and being cared for, unlike so many other institutions where kids are dying constantly all around the world in these horrible conditions. But I, I couldn't shake. Sorry. I couldn't shake my excuses because they're all about me. The whole thing was about me. It was about my life. Do I have room in my house? Heck yes, I do. Do I have the ability? Yes. Do I have the strength? No. Not on my own. But that's why it says in John 15, 5, abide in me. And I'll give you that strength. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And it just kept, kept coming up over and over again. And I haven't told you the whole truth here. Because she wasn't the only little girl we were looking at. And there's a couple other children that we've expressed interest in. And this week we began the process of adopting a child from Haiti, or at least a child. Who knows what God has in store because I make my plans. God directs the path. We started our fingerprint process, so 
It's very possible in the next 18 months to two years we'll be traveling to Haiti to, to bring at least a child, excuse me, at least a child home. I don't tell that story to pat ourselves on the back. I tell one to pray for us that we have the strength and the abilities. And I don't tell you that to guilt you into anything. I tell you that because of this. There's more to this life than living and then dying and accumulating stuff in between. We live for Christ. We live our lives for Him. We die to ourselves and we live for Him. Prepare to die, but learn to live. That is the book of Ecclesiastes. That is what we'll be going through for the next 12 weeks. So prepare your hearts and minds for it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way you continue to work in each of our lives. The way you bring up moments that bring a challenge to our hearts to stop living for ourselves, to stop living for the things of this world because as Solomon says over and over and over again, it's all meaningless. The only thing that has meaning is to fear God and keep his commands to follow after you day after day, to die to ourselves, to prepare to live. But God, we can't do it on our own because just like I said, we don't have the strength. We don't have the ability. But in you, we do. We ask for your power, God. We ask for your wisdom, God, to make the decisions necessary as we look at 2024 and all the craziness that might come our way that God, we can stand firm in you and stand firm in the truth that you are the only thing that truly, ultimately matters. Not politics, not stuff, not money. None of those things truly matter. The only thing that really matters is you. And God, we just need your wisdom to continue to believe that every day and live it out every day. We pray it in your name. Amen.